Hello and welcome. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with the WPFW News Team. This is Friday Evening Fireside, a long-form version of our Monday morning news program. We are bringing you two extended interviews from Monday. As always, our intention is to preserve the discursive nature of our work and share that process with our listeners. In this edition of Friday Evening Fireside, I talk with a researcher focused on Africa about the economics of kidnappings in Nigeria and the broader question of closing civic space on the continent. But first up, reporter Amara Evering has a conversation with activist, writer, and media strategist Raquel Willis about the exclusion of trans women from mainstream feminist discourses and how everybody will benefit from a more trans-affirming world. Willis is the former executive director of Out Magazine and former national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. She's also the creator of Black Trans Circles and the Trans Obituaries Project. So I know that you spoke at the National Women's March three years ago, which was seen by many as like the incarnation of mainstream feminism. I was there myself. So (laughs) do you believe that um, in those spaces, um, in those mainstream feminist spaces, the voices of Black, cis, and trans women is prioritized as much as all other voices? No. (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think that we have gotten to a point yet where the voices of women of color, Black women, queer and trans women um, has been fully acknowledged, along with so many other groups, you know, including disabled women, women of different religions, women who live around the world. Um, Yeah, so I, I do think that there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I I think an important part of it is we still have work to do in reckoning with our history, with the fact that um, in feminist and women's liberation movements, there has been exclusion all along the way. And so there has to be an understanding um, that you can't truly fight against the patriarchy and gender-based oppression without equally fighting just as hard against white supremacy, against ableism, capitalism, what I consider to be kind of the children of the patriarchy, homophobia and transphobia. Um, and so many other uh, layers of oppression. And so do you think that um, intersectionality is important um, or should in these spaces or if it was your choice, would you just like make your own space and just be there um, and separate? Um, I definitely think intersectionality is so important, um, but it, you know, it's just one um, element Uh, of the work, I I think it's kind of a balance of having those spaces where you can kind of build solidarity and rapport on a larger level with other groups of women. And it is important to, particularly for women on the margins, to have their own spaces to build power. So as a Black trans woman, I welcome being in spaces with women who do not have that experience. And I think a lot of power can happen there, but I also learned, and I think in large part due to my experience at the 2017 Women's March that um, there's a lot of power that needs to be built amongst black trans women ourselves. And so the way that people can show up when they discuss allyship or being a comrade or a co-conspirator um, is by supporting us and building the resources for us to have those autonomous spaces. Um, 
and you know what what is important to me is also making clear that black trans women aren't waiting for anyone to kind of come and save us um we have been doing this work building these spaces for generations you know if you look at the work of Marsha p johnson with um star house if you look at the work that crystal labasia did and kind of pioneering the network of houses and ballroom culture you know that organizing um power has always been there um but just as that power has always been there so have the um structural barriers to fully harness that power. And just kind of going directly off of that in reference to Black trans circles, I know that you said, quote, it is imperative that Black trans women gain skills to heal, organize, and develop internal community solutions because relying on the state slash police slash court system is often not an option. Uh, so why is this often not an option for Black trans women? Um, you know, relying on the state for anything is, as we know, not really an option for most people. <laughs> um, we know for Black people, the state has not been interested in protecting us. This is why police brutality has been a part of the fabric of the United States for as long as it has. This is why the criminal quote justice unquote system has so ravaged black communities. Um, this is why the state and its actors will allow people to um, waste away in poverty and death really um, without getting them the stimulus checks that they deserve or increasing the minimum wage that people need or expanding healthcare access in a, in a truly transformative way. Um, you know, so the interesting thing is, you know, we talk a lot about how um, the state has failed Black people and how it has failed other communities of color and queer and trans people, but it has truly failed everyone. Um, <laughs> which I know is like, that's so uh, depressing, but I, I think that knowing this history, knowing kind of the current status of the state and the government and its actors, um, of course, Black trans women won't truly find recourse in, in it, you know, and in them. Um, and so, you know, when I think about the violence that Black trans women face, this epidemic of violence. I believe that our greatest chance at ending it is by supporting the efforts of um, Black trans leaders and organizers on the ground. Yes, there needs to be accountability for the people who commit this harm, at least the physical side of it. Um, but I don't know that that actually, the way that the state actually goes about making accountability happen is actually beneficial in the long haul for the communities that we come from. Um, you know, I also think that a, a, a lot of violence and bigotry comes from a lack of access to information, both um, intentional and, and maybe more just consequential. Um, I think we need to be 
empowering people to understand the complexity of identity, the complexity of gender, the complexity of experiences. Uh, trans people aren't the only ones experiencing gender. We're also not the only ones um, who can experience crisis of gender. You know, when I think about cisgender people, they are also in a crisis, you know, from the things that are considered the most kind of benign, like the gender reveals, which feels so weird, you know, to the lack of uh, emotional expression or, or how we, we stifle emotional expression in men and masculine people, how we stifle um, uh, intellect, capability and autonomy and self-determination in women and feminine um, individuals. Um, that's happening to all of us. And it, it, we have to get to a point where cis people understand that they will benefit a lot from a more um, trans-affirming world. That was a really long answer. No, it's okay. <laughs> but I know that you took on um, this huge project of writing obituaries for Black trans women. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I just want to ask you why take on this huge project. Um, as a writer, I know that discerning what to put in someone's story is really hard. Um, and so I just, I want you to talk about that process and why you, you did that in the first place. Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, when I was executive editor at Out Magazine, I, you know, I was, uh, blessed to work with a team that was always trying to figure out new ways to um, elevate the stories in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and so it was a space where I felt empowered to kind of, uh, you know, go big with how we talk about this epidemic of violence. Um, I had always been interested in kind of figuring out a long form version of talking about the deaths that happen in any given year. And um, I also was largely interested in how we humanize the stories of trans people, you know, when a trans person dies, often there is so much, um, there's so much, there's such a lack of empathy um, for us um, from people being misgendered to people being dead named um, to people's deaths being um, justified maybe by the circumstances of their life um, or the circumstances of the instance that ultimately resulted in their death. And I really wanted to figure out how to give them the obituaries that they deserved. Um, you know, so, so what would it look like for us to understand that this, this uh, epidemic is happening and remember that that means that it's even more important that we get the story right and that we get them some justice because it's probably not going to come from the state and the system. Um, and I also am always, oh, at least over the last few years and this also, kind of led me in my creation of Black Trans Circles Project at Trans Law Center, interested in the people and the communities who are left behind when a trans person is killed. Because we don't think about that. We're just like, oh, another number, and then it's done. But there are 
Black trans women and folks and loved ones and family members and community members who are impacted by every death. And if we don't figure out how to heal those people who are still there, we're also not doing justice by what's happening. And so that was, you know, kind of the impetus behind the Trans Obituaries Project. I also was interested in delving into the story of Laylene Polanco, a 27-year-old Afro-Latina who died in Rikers custody in June 2019, um, which was the 50th anniversary month of the Stonewall riots. And, you know, I, you can't capture every dynamic in, in, in a project like this, but the fact that 50 years ago at that point, now it's been more than 50, 50 plus years ago, trans folks of color were sounding the alarm on how police brutality was not okay, how we were being criminalized, and that that continues today. It's a problem. And, and the fact that it's never, I shouldn't say never, but the fact that it is rarely mentioned is an even deeper problem. And it, it makes you wonder how much we have actually changed as a society. Have we actually started to care more about the humanity of trans people of color or not? Um, you know, so, so that's kind of the different parts of it. And I think the last part, which probably may be the most enduring part in the long run, was the 13-point framework that I um, built out of interviews with community leaders and experts. And let's be clear, I, I know them to be experts, but, you know, I don't think the larger world understands that there's an expertise in the work that many a Black trans person or a trans person of color does. You know, um, it's like anything else. It's like, you know, a black woman can be in a, a, of any experience can be in a meeting and people will assume her white male assistant is the one running the meeting and not her, you know? Um, but that that is what happens to us. And, you know, I really wanted to make sure with this project that I was saying that the solutions are in our communities we have Black trans people who are figuring out abolitionist alternatives to the prison system. We have Black trans people who are building um, cultural heritage districts and sites to, to make sure that our history doesn't just dissipate. Um, we have Black trans people fighting against sex work legislation, anti-sex work legislation. Um, we had an amazing woman, Monica Roberts, um, who is, was like the Black trans Ida B. Wells Bardet, <clears throat> who was often the first um, <clears throat> person to report on violence and murder in our community before outlets cared, right? Before it was like sexy to highlight what was happening to trans people. She was doing this in the mid 2000s, you know, Monica Roberts. So I think that's the most enduring part is that the solutions are in our communities. We just need the folks outside of our communities to see that, honor it, elevate it and support it. I'm so long-winded today, wow. <laughs> That's okay. That's a good thing. I mean, unless you have somewhere to go, then it's not a good thing. But... You're fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, reading through the obituaries, it was like, it was almost like each one was written <clears throat> in perspective of 
the person that loved them the most in their life. It was just very like a, a loving tone, um, which was really beautiful. But anyways, pivoting from that. Um, so you created, I know you created Black Trend Circles. Um, and in its launch, it was written, quote, we laughed, we cried, we leaned on each other, which is a very emotional uh, description of an event. Um, can you speak more about this experience? Was it actually emotionally moving for you to be in that space? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a um, far cry from my early kind of uh, transition experience because I, I really didn't know and, and wasn't really in community with other Black trans women until I left small town Georgia um, and like moved to Atlanta. That was kind of the awakening point for me. Um, but, you know, growing up and in college and even a little bit after college, I I was completely isolated, except from like media that was starting to emerge. Um, so it was beautiful to be in that space. It reified all these ideas that I knew to be true, that Black trans women, when we come together, we can come up with the solutions we need in our communities. And that actually plenty of Black trans women have come up with solutions that work for them. They just need the people power to kind of build it into something larger and more sustained. And so that space was a time for us to talk about the violence that is happening and like get into it, not just gloss over the surface of it. Um, we were able to talk about trauma and how to figure out um, healthy healing responses to it. We talked about the, the importance of community and, and reclaiming our power. Um, and, you know, there were plenty of uh, participants who said that was the first time they were in a space like that. Um, and it continues today. In fact, the, there will be a um, convening um, fairly soon. Um, and the work continues, even though I'm not at TLC, um, led by Mariah Moore, who was in that initial cohort. So it was kind of beautiful to kind of see the way that it lives on, you know, um, and how other Black trans leaders um, strengthen their voices in that space, you know, and, and Mariah is great. She's running for office in New Orleans now, and she and another participant founded an organization, um, uh, called House of Tulip in New Orleans, which is focused on, um, uh, finding long-term housing solutions for the community. Um, another woman, Wendy Cooper, um, deepened her work on a campaign down there to kind of strike out outdated laws that unfairly uh, unfairly targeted um, trans people. Um, so a lot came out of that space and is still coming out of that space. And it was an honor to, to craft it and yeah, and, and build that vehicle. And I, I don't know if you've gotten this question before, but I know that many people may ask, you know, why host this in the South? You know, why host this in Louisiana where there's been a lot of um, anti-trans violence? Um, so why did you, why did you choose to build this place specifically like in the South? You know, I've been to Georgia and Augusta. I actually went to college there. Oh. Like, you know, so yeah, interesting energy in the South. So, <laughs> well, the year that I was building um, Black Trans Circles, well, I'll, I'll go back. The methodology behind Black Trans Circles was to target areas with the highest rates of violence and murder in a given year. So, in 2017, I believe, 
I think it was 2017. Because by the time we had it, it was like later. But fact check me on that. I think it was either 2017 or 2018. I think it was 2017. In 2017, Louisiana had the highest rates of murder. I mean, there was a there there was a point around February of that year that there was a murder almost every week um, uh, uh, of a black trans person um, and or a black trans woman, I should specify. So it, it made sense to kind of go there because I saw it as ground zero for violence in that year before. Um, and I felt like that that was precisely what we needed to do was to target the areas that were having the violence um, and often lacked the support um, to fight against it and prevent it. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times we go into areas or I shouldn't say that. I think a lot of times, um, national organizations go into areas where there's plenty of uh, trans-led organizations that can kind of hold the work. They just need their support bolstered. It's more important and impactful to go to areas where there isn't as much infrastructure and support the creation of it, not do it for anybody, right? Or tell people what they need, but build spaces where they can figure out what they need. Um, so that that was the that was the point. You know, the South is also a space where overwhelmingly there is a lot of violence and murder. And if you look at the South in terms of anti-trans legislation, especially even this year particularly in Texas, you know, you have to go to the source to kind of root it out. And if you can, and I believe if you can root it out in the most unlikely place, then those other places will kind of fall in line. So speaking of the South, mm -hmm. um, you grew up in the South. Uh, as a young person, who did you what woman did you look up to um, in your life? In my life? Well, you know, even though I'm firmly a millennial and approaching 30, um, I think people forget how quickly things shifted with trans visibility in this last decade. Um, 10 years ago, there was virtually no one um, especially Black trans women um, who had the kind of platform and visibility that they do now. Um, the summer that I graduated from college, Orange is the New Black premiered. Um, it was about, I would say about a year after, a year before Janet Mock um, published her first memoir. So there really wasn't, I really didn't have possibility models like that, you know, during my most formative years. I really was far, squarely an adult by the time some of these possibility models kind of came into the fore. So, so I just, I say all that just to, to say, it, I literally did not have Black trans women to look up to growing up. Um, and I, I didn't have access to the history, right? Because there were plenty of Black trans women, um, but I, I wasn't connected to them. And we weren't taught their history, just like kids aren't taught their history now, you know? People aren't taught their history now. We're lucky we got, you know, social media and the internet that kind of fills in all those gaps, right? But um, I, I mean, I looked up to my mom who I, even though she does not consider herself a feminist, was the first feminist in my life. She was a boss and she, um, she was the breadwinner and she was very, she had, you know, a doctorate degree in education. And so she 
had this flourishing career and was very present as a mom. And I mean, she literally had it all. And then she also, we went to church every Sunday. She taught Sunday school. Um, like my whole childhood, like every Sunday, basically. And she was very involved in community outreach and volunteer work. I, yeah, and listening to it now, I'm like, no wonder I am the way I am and I'm always doing the most is because my mom <laughs> did the most. Um, but, you know, my mom even received an award from the bishop in Georgia of the Catholic Church for her volunteer work and her service. So, I mean, it was a huge thing, you know, so I, she was definitely someone I looked up to. I looked up to my sister um, who in a lot of ways, I, she like studied journalism and she moved away to kind of, you know, figure out her life as an adult and I always appreciated that, like her willingness to be on, you know, unfearful. She was also a boss in her own right with kids. She got it all too. So yeah, I would say my mom, my sister, my grandmas. Um, yeah, there were, there were a lot of strong women in my, black women in my life growing up. Um, and, and that was really all I had, you know, outside of like media, but, but there was just something particular about the power of Southern black women that I, I still hold close today. I love that. That was beautiful. And so again, talking about another article to reference your family, you said, quote, I worried about their response, especially because I had limited language to describe what I'd felt for as long as I could remember. And now I found it interesting that you as a writer said that as a young person, you had limited language um, to describe what you felt. Um, can you talk about what this means to have limited language? Yeah, you know, I, I think it goes back to what I was saying about the lack of education piece. You know, <clears throat> I'm a writer now. I, I, I would say probably a large part of being the writer I am now it, and the person who is interested in kind of expanding narratives that I am now is based in years of being silent about my truth. I mean, I knew at a young age I was some kind of different. <laughs> Um, but I also knew that I didn't have the space to say that, share that, explore that openly. Um, I knew I had a story. I knew eventually I was going to have to share some of that story to kind of, uh, free myself up, um, lar you know, largely my coming out story, um, and I was so afraid. I was like, it was, I dreaded the day I would have to come out. Um, and then somewhere along, you know, my preteen years, I was like, okay, I only got a few more years left in me to be silent. And then eventually I, I started coming out. But, you know, I think that um, not having the language was a pro and and being isolated was just a product of our history in this country of silencing the people who are different um yeah you know more and more queer and trans people are coming out today coming out you know at younger ages but I'm not convinced that that means that there are necessarily more of us. I think we've always been here in large numbers, but what has shifted is we have sh chipped away at the shame and stigma of being queer or, and or trans. Um, so much so that, yeah, now we can see increasing percentages of folks being out. Um, and, and there's more understanding. Um, and we've had thought leaders who 
provoked the status quo, you know, from all areas of, of our work, you know, whether it was um, Black civil rights uh, thinkers and leaders like James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin or Mar Marsha P. Johnson, whether it was Black feminist leaders like Barbara Smith and the Combahee River Collective um, and Audre Lorde and so many other, you know, talented folks. Like we've always been there. If you look in our history, it, it looks like, you know, these separate kind of stars, but it's really a constellation. And that is our history, our lineage, our leg legacy too. So I, um, I think that is why it's so important for us to not only let queer and trans youth know who they are, but let the youth who aren't queer and trans know who we are so that when they encounter us, they can see our beauty and brilliance and, and grow and learn from it too. Okay, and just as a last question, um, sorry, this has gone quite over time. So this- I'm being long-winded, child. Yeah. I know, it's okay. <laughs> no, no. And I, I, enjoy, I enjoy hearing you speak, but um, so in the publication, The Mother and Daughters of the Movement, um, mm -hmm. you asked the featured women, how do you want to be remembered? Okay. So, oh, you did your research. I really did. And you made it very <laughs> hard for me because you've written so much. I was like, I have never seen such, so many articles <laughs> written by one person. So, yeah. You know, and it's so funny because I always feel like I haven't done enough. But I know, child, this is it's just me. <laughs> That's inspiring to me as a writer because it's like, it takes everything out of me just to write one thing. So it's just like, to see you write so much is crazy. Um, but how do you want to be remembered? Yeah, how do I want to be remembered? Uh, how do I want to be remembered? I do want to be remembered. You know, I, I think that there is a, um, I think that there is like a, stigma around saying you want to be remembered. Um, but when I, you know, I think about my work so far, and I hope to have many years more of work, that is what I leave on the planet. Um, you know, I think about like my brother and sister and like they they have great careers and and important they do important work um and they also have children and i think about what children often mean to people um i would like to have children one day that'd be great i don't know that that will definitely happen but i feel like the work that i try to do in the name and honor and dignity of black trans people is for all of those unnamed kids who will come up later, who, you know, I hope don't experience isolation, right? But they might, you know, we are still dealing with um, so many of the original ills of this country and this world in terms of division. <sighs> So they might, and I want them to be able to look back and say, oh, that she's like me. I mean, in a different time. Um, and she loved me in advance. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any closing comments or? Just drop the mic. Uh, well, okay. I, let me, I'm going to look at our list of questions and see. I mean, I know it's all women's day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm surprised you didn't ask me the like hard questions about like, you know, the turfs and the cis women who are anti-trans, you know. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about like, 
know, transphobia in the black community and like some other stuff. I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you want to speak about that. I was like, maybe I should just- no, I always speak about that. Sometimes I feel like those are the most important conversations. Okay. I was like, maybe I should just keep it just on like the work she's done and like talk about that. But I was like- You don't have to be light with me. Look. You can talk about it. You're a journalist. So if you feel that you need to ask some hard questions, as long as you ask them respectfully, you, you don't have to worry about anything. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't mind just saying, you know, I think that we all have to reckon with the fact that we both have the capacity to be oppressed and be an oppressor. And oppression can come from any type of person. You know, when I think about where conversations need to go in women's movement, I think we need to see more women showing up for women of different experiences. Cis women have got to, cis feminists in particular, who claim to believe in the power of trans people and trans women and see us as, you know, their equal counterparts, need to be presenting a united front against the bigotry of those who are trans exclusionary and need to be working with us to clarify the type of feminism that we let fly today. Yeah, that's what I would leave with. Okay, thank you for, thank you for adding that. I I probably should have, I should have asked that more directly. It's okay. You did my work for me. You're funny. All right. I have to hop off and take this call. It's like really important. Okay. No problem. Well, thank you. Keep doing the work you do. And you're really an inspiration to me. So thank you. And let me know if you ever need anything else. So of course, of course. Thank you. Bye. That was Raquel Willis, activist, writer, media strategist, and creator of Black Trans Circles and the Trans Obituaries Project, in conversation with reporter Amara Evering. Don't forget, you can follow our news team on Twitter at WPFWMMQB, or follow the station itself at WPFWDC. Visit WPFW.org to listen live and to become a sustainer of listener-supported radio in the nation's capital. Next up, I speak with Temi Ibarogba, Program and Research Associate at the Center for International Policy's Africa Program, and sub-editor for the Republic Journal. We talk about the recent history of kidnapping in Nigeria, from the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls campaign in 2014 to the capture and release of 279 schoolgirls earlier this month. I kind of want to start by talking about the economic situation in particular. Can you discuss what the economic conditions in Nigeria were like during the 2016 recession and again during this COVID recession? and whether those worsening conditions directly correlate with increased rates of kidnapping or or motivate those kidnappings? Yeah, of course. So, you know, the mass kidnappings of children has become a revenue source amidst Nigeria's current economic crisis, which is um, currently, you know, the worst recession Nigeria has been in since 1987. So that's in 34 years. Um, So this second crisis that you're talking about began in 2020. Um, And the country is currently dealing with the inflation of food prices and the devaluation of the Naira, which is all um, effects of its deteriorating economy. Um, But it's important to note that Nigeria also experienced a second recession under Buhari's presidency, like you mentioned. Um, He came into power in 2015 and he's currently serving his second term. So the 2016 recession was a result of a huge decline in oil prices and poor management of the country's um, currency crises. 
And the most recent um, recession was largely due to the fallout from COVID-19, which was caused by oil prices um, that began to collapse again. Um, and Nigeria's economy is extremely overly dependent on oil. Um, it's its biggest revenue source. So this really points to the importance of the country diversifying its exports, um, which is something that Buhari hasn't made um, a priority due to his business as usual approach to governing. And although the IMF and the National Bureau of Statistics reported last month that the country had, you know, unexpectedly exited its most recent recession in the fourth quarter, you know, that's due to growth in agriculture and telecommunications um, that helped to offset that sharp drop in oil production. Everyday people are still being affected by food prices and the current state of the Naira. Um, and that's further being exasperated by things like the farmer herder conflict. Um, so, you know, although the recession has technically ended, um, now, you know, people are, everyday people are still, you know, suffering. It still does feel like it's a recession um, at the moment. Sure. I think in addition to these economic motivations, it seems that in some instances, the kidnappings are at least perceived as being motivated by, by other factors. Boko Haram, for example, was seen as having terroristic or political motives. And I, I know in one father in this most recent case was quoted as saying that the kidnapping was an attempt to deny these, these schoolgirls an education. Can you discuss what roles these other motivations might play in kidnappings? Of course. So, you know, the, um, on the 26th of February, we know that, you know, 317 girls were abducted from a boarding school in northern Nigeria, and then they were released the following week. Um, you know, the numbers kind of changed. Offic originally, officials said 317, and then they switched that number to 279. Um, and this kidnapping was the latest in a series of kidnappings in the north of Nigeria. Um, so the week before these girls in Zamfara state um, were kidnapped, more than 40 adults um, in Niger state um, were also kidnapped and then freed shortly after. And then in December, so just a couple months ago, more than 300 schoolboys were abducted in Kankara state, which is in Northwest Nigeria. And then they were freed days after. And then of course, you probably remember the story of the Chipot girls, which um, points towards, you know, violent extremists, violent extremism, excuse me, being, um, being a cause for, for these kidnappings. Um, 276 girls in 2014 were kidnapped. Um, and this garnered international attention under the hashtag bring back our girls. And you had prominent figures like then first lady Michelle Obama engaging in activism to demand their release. And today, you know, 112 of those girls are still unaccounted for, although there were some releases in 2016 and 2017. So definitely, um, you know, Boko Haram extremism was a cause of some of these um, kidnappings. Um, but today we're really seeing that, um, you know, kidnappings are also, you know, they're rooted in this kidnap for ransom dynamic. So due to the economic issues that Nigeria, um, you know, is facing, um, these people, which, you know, are being labeled as bandits, they're, you know, they're motivated by money. Um, since governors have little control over security in their states, um, because the police and army are actually controlled by the federal government, um, these governors end up resorting to paying ransoms. Um, so mass abductions have become um, a way for these bandits to create income for themselves. Um, and although governors denying deny paying ransoms, um, you know, in the past, the governor of Zamfara state, you know, he's promised kidnappers houses and monies and cars and things like that. So it's definitely um, one of the ways that people look um, to benefit economically. It seems like there is concern that paying ransoms to kidnappers will incentivize future attacks. President Buhari himself has, has warned against paying those ransoms. But as you say, regional governors don't have much in the way of, of other attempts to get these girls back or these, these school children back. What should the federal government do differently? And are there things that regional governments can do differently to safely return these children without incentivizing future attacks? Yeah, so these kidnappings show that Buhari has really failed to contain 
bandits and jihadists in the country, even though he has declared victory over Boko Haram multiple times. Um, and his response is to blame state and local governments. Um, and he's told them to that they need to improve security around the schools. Um, and every time something like this happens, he gives a similar press release where he expresses sympathy for the kidnappings. Um, he prays for their quick return. Um, and then once they're freed, he rejoices the fact that they're safe, but it's extremely problematic that his response always involves scapegoating this recurring issue on local governments. Because like I said before, police and army are controlled um, by the federal government. So, you know, insecurity is really a result of his weak governing. Um, and, you know, he does scold these governors for rewarding kidnappers with, with you know, money and cars and things like that, um, you know, in exchange as the ransom. Um, negotiations probably would be um, the best alternate. Um, in the case of the Zamfara girls, it's still unclear how they were released because the Nigerian government has denied paying ransom um, with the 300 boys that were kidnapped in December. Um, no ransom was paid, apparently, that's what's reported, and instead that their freedom was, you know, secured through negotiations, um, and Buhari's response to that was really commending the partnership and the collaborative effort of the governments that were involved, of the two states that were involved, as well as the military. Um, in the case of the Chibok girls in 2014, 21 of those girls um, were released to the Nigerian government after negotiations once again. And then um, in 2017, there was like a prisoner swap um, between Boko Haram and the government um, that occurred in Abuja. So, you know, those are different um, methods that have been used um, beyond um, ransom to, to free these school children. To broaden the conversation a little bit, the, the end SARS movement captured headlines across the planet in the fall of last year. And I, I wonder if frustration with abusive policing in that instance is being tied together at all with a frustration over ineffective policing in the case of these kidnappings. Are, are social movements in Nigeria linking these two problems in any way? Um, yeah, I definitely think there's overall frustration in Nigeria um, from the citizens and just how the government is operating in general. So when you're talking about civil society space, when you're talking about the economy and when you're talking about insecurity in the country. So wherever you look in the country, there seems to be some issue um, with Buhari's business as usual um, approach to governing. So um, yeah, I definitely do think that you can say there's a link. And to kind of extend this, I, I talked with Adate Akwe of Amnesty International on the SARS topic back in October, and he mentioned what he called a, a closing civic space mm -hmm. in Nigeria and in places across the continent, mostly as a result of government crackdowns on, on um, political expression. Mm -hmm. But is it possible to understand this disruption of education, uh, even if it's not being done by a government, as part of this closure of civic space on the continent? Yeah, because, you know, these people who are turning to extremism, why are they turning to extremism? It's because of economic poverty. It's because of a sense of apathy towards the government. It's because they feel neglected. Um, and, you know, when they actually are being addressed, they're being harassed by the police or being harassed by the government. So they are going to end up turning, you know, extremism is a result of um, disenfranchisement by, by especially um, when it's experienced by, you know, young men in society. Um, so, it's, it's clear to see that how everything is kind of interconnected um, and the issue of extremism in Nigeria is a result of neglect by the government. And then the government's also is, um, is also causing this shrinking in civil society space, which then, you know, that's why you have movements like Ansaris people are coming to the streets because, um, you know, they're being, they're being oppressed, they're being repressed um, by their government, by the police. So it's just like, a, Nigeria is like a layered, case study when you're talking about different types of um, issues. And once again, the Buhari administration, this is his second term, like I said earlier, and he isn't really doing the things that he promised to when he was campaigning for his second term, um, which is why, you know, Nigeria just recovered, um, you know, quotation marks from its most recent recession. But like I said earlier, you're still seeing um, really dire um, effects um, this past week, there's been, been a meat scarcity um, in Lagos um, because the North is, um, the South pretty much depends on, largely depends on the North um, for food 
and for meat, things like that. And um, at the moment, like bandits in the north are blocking food trucks from coming down to the south. Um, so, you know, this once again just highlights, um, you know, the situation on the ground. Uh, you know, I'd imagine the need for emotional and psychological counseling is really massive following a kidnapping like this. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of young children who've just been through a really traumatic experience. What kinds of support have these child survivors received in the past and has it been sufficient to meet their needs? Yeah, that's a really important question. So, you know, in the case of the boys who were kidnapped in December, um, they underwent medical examinations um, before they were reunited with their families. Um, but, you know, beyond that, there hasn't been an impartial independent investigation um, into their abduction or even into the idea of re rehabilitating them. Um, and experts have warned that, you know, the most recent kidnapping of the Sunflower Girls, you know, following this most recent kidnapping, excuse me, um, that Niger the Nigerian government has, you know, international legal obligations to make sure that these children receive the support they need because following those kidnappings in December, like I said, there was, there was really nothing. Um, back in 2016, um, the United Nations Children Children's Fund they highlighted the need for psychological care um, for abducted children in Nigeria because, you know, they have a really long road to recovery and it's very hard to rebuild your life after such trauma. Um, in the case of the Chibok girls, you know, many were raped, beaten, forced into marriages. They had been indoctrinated by, um, by Boko Haram. So UNICEF and International Alert actually partnered together to help provide psychological support um, for the female victims of Boko Haram. So that's an example of support that's been given. But in terms of the Nigerian government, um, they have a lot more that they need to do. Sure. Lastly, it seems pretty clear that economic conditions are a root cause of these, these kidnappings. And so I wonder what a good policy formula might be for the federal government to pursue to address these economic conditions. You mentioned diversifying exports as an example, but what, what's the best formula to really improve the Nigerian economy and take the wind out of the sails of these, of these kidnappers? Yeah, that's you know a really important question that I'm sure economists throughout Nigeria are contemplating. Um, like I said, I think diversifying um, the economy is gonna be one of its big, big things, even when you look at things currently that are going on, you know, Nigeria just received um, its first batch of Co COVAX vaccines um, um, for COVID. And those vaccines were developed in India. And, you know, there's a conversation around the fact that Nigeria and India actually used to be, you know, on the same, in the same place when you're discussing economics and discussing developing countries. So it's, you know, when you're talking about Nigeria's potential, it's kind of disappointing because, you know, these Niger could have been a part of this vaccine vaccination development. So I think um, a real focus on exports, um, the country imports a lot of things, um, an insane amount of things. So the manufacturing industry um, really needs to be more developed, um, which is part of that diversification of the economy. Um, and even tying it back to, you know, these kidnappings, they're no longer just targeting um, rich and powerful individuals like one would expect with financially motivated kidnappings. Um, you know, like we've discussed in this interview, they're targeting school children. Um, and that's because following um, the kidnapping of the Chibok girls, um, it got so much international publicity and attention that they realized that school children are, you know, a commodity um, and it would guarantee them publicity um, and then government involvement in these negotiations, which means millions of dollars um, in ransom payments. So just even that dynamic being in place just shows how, um, how dire the economic state or condition is in Nigeria at the moment. But I think um, a focus on more manufacturing, more exports. Um, the Africa Free Trade Agreement has, um, you know, it started the beginning of 2021 um, after a bit of delay due to COVID. So that's another um, really, you know, great thing. It ties all the economies in, in Africa together a lot better. Um, so that would also be something that, you know, um, the Nigerian government should be looking at as a way to boost uh, its economy. Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, 
you know, I'm obviously happy that these girls um, were freed, but just really saddened by how recurring, you know, this issue is. And I think the Buhari administration really needs to get it together because the legacy um, that his presidency is going to leave isn't a particularly positive one. Um, but if he can make an attempt to help stop, um, you know, these kidnappings from happening, at least that's something, you know, we'll be able to say that he did. That does it for our sixth episode of Friday Evening Fireside. Don't miss our regular Monday morning news program at 11 a.m. on WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. This Monday, we dig into two Biden cabinet members and their relationships with communities of color, shed light on a campaign to end utility shutoffs during the pandemic, and confront the deadly racism afflicting Asian Americans. For WPFW News, this is Chris Bangert-Drowns. Signing off.